0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. John chapter 2, 12 through 22. John chapter 2, picking up at verse 12. The Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray. That you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So we. We leave Cana of Galilee, and Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples travel down to uh, Capernaum, staying there a few days. It's likely early April in the year 27 AD. We don't learn anything about what they do in Capernaum at this point. The next verse we, we find out that they moved from Capernaum on to Jerusalem, the city of David. And it seems that, that Capernaum was a kind of a home base. It was a place where Jesus uh, performed many of his miracles. It was a place that they returned to often where some of his uh, apostles were from. And it is the place that receives the strong denunciation of Jesus after having performed miracles there when he saw their unbelief. And so uh, this Capernaum will keep coming back up uh, throughout. Now, then they come to Jerusalem at the time when the Passover was approaching it would be the time of the passover 3 years in the future that jesus would come to jerusalem to be crucified and and you remember that in the gospel in the in the synoptic gospels in matthew mark luke there's a cleansing of the temple that takes place at the end uh, at that last week of jesus life this that we're looking at is a different cleansing of the temple, and so there are two in Scripture. One, as he's just initiating, the, f- the first time uh, as part of his public ministry, he comes in Jerusalem, and then he cleanses it again as he's leaving Jerusalem. He enters this time not to be bound and killed, but to preach the gospel. To call his people to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. And remember, Jerusalem at this point would have been filled with with people. Uh, Filled with people preparing for the Passover and the subsequent week-long feast of unleavened bread. All males from the age of 12 and up were expected to be there for this feast. Two other feasts, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and the Feast of Booths, had similar required attendance by the the adult males in Jerusalem. God commanded his people as written in Deuteronomy 16. He said, three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, which is Jerusalem, the temple, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and at the Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Booths and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. They're supposed to bring something, right? Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So he was supposed to come with gifts. Uh, he was supposed to come to pay the temple tax. He was supposed to come to give sacrifice to the Lord. So Jerusalem was filled to the brim with ambitious and scheming men who who desired to make a few bucks, not just a few bucks, but a lot of money from this crowd of people that would be traveling, some people from far distance away. Traveling from cities, these pilgrims would have needed to make their offering to the Lord, and hence we have our first fast food industry set up in the temple courts. Except it's not food for eating, but food for the temple sacrifices that they were selling. They're selling God's food at this, at this, in this temple court. They were selling oxen, sheep, and doves for the required sacrifices, the required gifts, just yards away from the altars upon which they burned those animals. Remember, this was within the temple, temple area, the temple courts. In this case, the court of the Gentiles. This is where it's outside the gate beautiful. It's the court of the Gentiles, and it's set up as a business. Uh, business, commerce, profiteering, exchanging of foreign currency for the coin of Jerusalem, all within the court of the temple. And they would also be paying, uh, all the people would be paying their temple tax according to the shekel of the sanctuary. They would be paying that during this time period. And they, that's why the money changers are present. Not everybody had the coin of Jerusalem, and and so those that were traveling from far away needed a money changer um, so that they had that pure silver. Um, They would be changing their money uh, from that, that foreign currency to Galilean shekels. Of course, those money changers would charge for that money changing. And those animal sellers would charge exorbitant prices for those, sacri- those sacrificial animals. Edersheim, in his commentary, says they'd, ch- they'd charge $4 for a pair of turtle doves, which were worth about a nickel. $4 for what was worth a nickel. It's like the price of, of food when you go to a sporting event only about a hundred times worse, right? Four dollars uh, for what was worth a nickel. It's estimated that the temple tax came in uh, at this time period in today's money at about 12 and a half million dollars they would take in at this point. Um, the profit for those money changers would have been about 11 and a half percent of that, so they would make one and a half million dollars during this, this feast, and this changing of, of the money. Here's a quick description of the of the structure of the temple uh, so that you have this picture in your mind of what's happening here, going from the centerpiece of the of the um, to the outer courts. You have the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple. And that's the place where the high priest goes in once a year to make atonement for the people once a year on the Day of Atonement after he has thoroughly cleansed himself so that he can enter into the presence of the Lord. Then out from the holy place uh, in which uh, uh, ve- you go through the veils from the, the uh, Holy of Holies into the holy place, And that is where the table of the showbread would be, the lampstand, the altar of incense, all the furniture of the temple would be outside of the Holy of Holies, but inside the holy place. Then outside of the holy place was the laver, the slaughtering tables, and the altar, right? So you had slaughtering tables for the animals, you had the laver where the the animal parts were washed, and then you had the barbecue pits, right, The, the altar, where the, the uh, sacrifices and the, and the smoke rose to the Lord. Then outside of that was the court of the women. So the women were separated off from those who would go in to offer the sacrifices. And then all of that was surrounded by the gate called Beautiful that went around the whole temple um, surrounding. Then outside of that gate called Beautiful was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where all of this is happening. That's where all of this is going down. It's the court of the Gentiles. Um, that's where the money, money changers had set up their tables. That's where all of these animals would be that were um, brought there to be sold. It would be noisy. It would be dirty. It would be chaotic. There would be bargaining and, and um, a lot of commotion going on. They would have been weighing coins. They would have been disputing with one another about uh, trade and values. It would have been completely mercantile, right? It would have been obnoxiously commercial. It would have been far from holy and peaceful. Add, add you know, to, to all, to all the commerce activity, the noise of the animals and the stink of the animals, and the dust and din of it all, um, and, and you just have a scene of, of intensity, intense chaos. A man could bring his own animals if he wanted, if he could, um, but his animals, those animals as they brought them in would be inspected, right, to see if they met the requirements of the scriptures and the priests, but the priests are in on all of right they're, they're getting some kickback from all of this they're in on this 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 business and so they would expect these animals that were brought and if they didn't pass inspection the priests who were in cahoots with these animal sellers would would recommend a purchase of one of these animals in place of the animal that was brought And so, but all of those animals that were brought would have been sort of pre sanctioned for sacrifice. They would have already gotten the stamp of approval from the priests who were working with the animal sellers. It is said that Annas, the high priest, during this time was a remarkably greedy man, and he would have have loved this bazaar. He would have loved this process because he was greedy. He would have loved this profitable marketplace. Again, Edersheim says, Of the avarice, there's that word, avarice, the love of money, of the avarice and corruption of the high priestly family, alike Joseph and the rabbis, gave a most terrible picture. Josephus describes Annas, the son of the Annas of the New Testament. So we're, we're, he's describing the Annas a generation ahead of this time. He describes that son as a great uh, hoarder up of money, very rich, and as despoiling um, and, and getting his wealth by open violence. The Talmud also records the curse which a distinguished rabbi of Jerusalem, Abba Shu'al, pronounced upon the high priestly families, including that of Annas, who were themselves high priests, their sons, treasurers, their sons-in-laws assistant treasurers while their servants beat the people with sticks. Right? So nepotism like crazy. The high priest the high priest's sons are keeping track of the wealth. The high priest's sons-in-laws are assistants to the sons in tracking all the money. And then the servants of the high priest are, are beating the people to get out from them this, this money, this tax, this, uh, this whole process is being stewarded by them. And so, think about this. It's into this disorderly chaos, this oppressive greed, this, this desertion of the whole purpose of his father's temple that Jesus en- enters. He comes into Jerusalem and this is what he sees in his father's house. And we think of that verse in Malachi, and I think this is when that that verse is fulfilled. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And he will purify the sons of Levi. Right? He has suddenly come and his first act in Jerusalem, in this holy place is to make a whip. He, he, he makes a whip. There would, have been, there would have been all kinds of material around in this crazy place for him to make uh, a whip. And he drives out the livestock with that whip. He drives out their, that's even better than driving out the money changers with those whips, because he's driving out their source of money. He drives out those animals, he drives them out of the place, away from the temple, and um, gets them away from this court. He ends their business, he drives at them with anger, he's swinging this whip, and as he snaps the whip, driving the animals away from their sellers, he's kicking over the tables of the money changers. Throwing their well ordered boxes of coins onto the ground. And to those dove sellers who are getting 800 times what their doves are worth, he shouts this rebuke take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Stop making my father's house a trading place. And the whole violence of this action is rather extraordinary in Jesus' work. Ryle says a word, a touch, or the refreshing, or the reaching forth of a hand are the ordinary limits of his action. It's a word. A little touch of the eyes. Or... Um, Those gentle actions, but here we see, Ryle says, here we see him doing no fewer than four things, making the whip, driving out the animals, pouring out on the ground the money changers' wealth, overthrowing the tables. On no occasion do we find him showing such strong outward marks of indignation as at the sight of the profanation of the temple. And this is key, why? Why? Why is it that he displays his anger? This is anger. Jesus is angry. It's only this. There is only one reason why Jesus is angry at this point. It's not because he's masculine. It's not because he's a man. right? It's not because he's, uh, he's a Jew who loves the traditions of Jerusalem. Right? It's, not, it's not because he's strong, you know. It's this. There is only one reason. He's zealous for his Father's glory. That's it. He is zealous for his Father's glory. That's why he's angry right now. He cares that his Father's glory would be manifested in this world. That's it. And that is the meaning of the next verse. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That description of Jesus is found in the middle of Psalm 69, that psalm that undoubtedly describes Jesus' life. And, and it's the psalm of which we read about Jesus' thirst on the cross. So now, let's be clear about this. Jesus is not raging out of control. He's not out of control at all. He's not raging. This is not him being overcome with the the passion of anger. Um, He is not raging. He's filled with a consuming zeal for his Father's glory. The Father had put his name on that temple that was where his father his presence would reside that's where he would meet with his people and here the people are treating it like like a business jesus is filled when he sees that he's filled with indignation he's filled with anger with righteous anger he's not angry because someone dissed him right the money changers we're dishonoring his father. He's not angry because he woke up angry that morning like you and I do. Right? He's not angry because his pride has been out of shape. No, that would be sinful anger, the kind of anger that consumes us on a regular basis. Right? He is angry because those creatures, the creatures that he had made for his own glory, we were busy profaning his father's name by turning his father's house into a way to fill up their bank accounts. Which is what so many modern Levites in the church do today. Jesus is angry because God is being dishonored. That's why he's angry. Now, does that ever account for your anger? is Is not our anger more often doesn't come up more often because people refuse to honor us or people refuse to respect us right or or to meet us where our pride expects them to meet us right Jesus anger was not that white hot anger that overcomes us when someone just uh, Unintentionally insults us. Jesus' anger was because his Father's glory consumed him. His Father's glory consumed him. Is it even possible for us who have a sinful nature to approximate or imitate that kind of anger? Is it even possible? Well, yes, it is. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul would never have written, Be angry and do not sin. Right? There is a way to be angry and for it not to be sin. Jesus proves that to us in this passage. Calvin says, there are three ways by which we can sin in our anger. One, when our anger arises from slight causes or no cause whatsoever. <laughs> it's just no cause whatsoever. I mean, we don't even have any excuse for it. No, one, no one's done anything to provoke us. Two, when we respond way beyond what the seeming offense is against us. So a slight offense comes and we go, wow! And blow up. And then third, when we are angry with our brothers, when we should have been angry with ourselves and our own sins. Projecting. Then he says this, we ought to be angry by zeal for the glory of the Lord. That's precisely what we see in Jesus here in our passage. Our problem is that we often think when our own glory is dissed, right, that it is our Father's glory that's being dissed. We have such inflated thoughts of ourselves that we take any disrespect as, uh, as persecution of the first order. Right? We interpret slights against us as something that puts the truth of God at risk. Yet when Jesus was insulted and blasphemed, he just kept his mouth shut. When his father's house, though, was desecrated by these greedy men and their wickedness, he rages. He righteously rages against them. Examine yourself. Right? Your anger is so so little justified. Right? How many times have you been angry because God has been blasphemed, or God has been blasphemed by your child's behavior? Right. Is it not most of the time that you're angry because your children haven't done what you've said or that they've just annoyed you or that they've punctured your pride, right? When our children disobey, we always think of other people watching them. And we get angry at them because they're making us look like a fool. We're not thinking about holiness or righteousness or the goodness of God or anything like that. If zeal for God consumed us, then our anger would be about God's glory and not about our own glory, our own comfort, our own egos, our own supposed rights to a few moments of quiet. Right? Moses exhibited righteous anger. Do you remember when Moses exhibited righteous anger? It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned. And he drew the tables from his hands. Those are the the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, right? And shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the water and made the sons of Israel drink it so that they would defecate their own idol. Phineas exhibited righteous anger. Remember Phineas. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the son of, son of, sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Right? The impurity had come into the tent. And Phineas goes in there and spears the couple, stops the plague, right? and then he is commended for this work. But, but notice what it says of him. He was jealous with my jealousy among them. He had the glory and zeal of God. He had zeal for God's glory. The Apostle Paul exhibited righteous anger. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols, right? He's seeing all these idols, all these false gods, and his spirit is provoked in him, and he's beginning to think of the one true living God, and then he goes and preaches in the Areopagus, right, and lets those those stupid philosophers know that they were ignorant, Augustine applies this passage in this simple way, a way that reveals our apathy, a lack of love towards our brothers and children and friends. He writes this. He makes this application of having zeal for God's house. Let the zeal of the house of God ever eat thee. For example, do you see your brother running to the theater? Stop him. Warn him. Be grieved for him. If the zeal of God's house has now eaten you, Do you see others running and wanting to drink themselves drunk? Stop whom you can, hold whom you can, frighten whom you can, whom you can win in gentleness. Do not in any wise sit still and do nothing. Zeal for the house of God, zeal should consume us as we warn others to flee from sin. Let me stop and and just ask you this: What are you zealous about, right? It w- when you stop and actually think about the things you're zealous about, it's astonishingly embarrassing how petty we can be. You, you, is it college football? It's not college football season. I have to save that for the fall. I flip that switch in the fall when it comes around. I mean, are you zealous for food? Is that what, what motivates you? You know, you work so that you can get to lunch, so that you can buy some good food, stuff your gut. That's your zeal. Are you zealous for um, collecting things? Are you zealous for uh, computer games? Are you zealous for wealth? Are you ze- I mean, are you zealous for cookies? Are you zealous for having a spotless car? Right? And anger for all those scratches on your car consumes you. I mean, look, we're pathetic. We are. We're pathetic. We are so pathetic in the things that we're zealous for, and so pathetic in how little zeal for God's house consumes us. How little zeal, and let me put it this way we have so little zeal for the church. The church we have so little zeal for this body we don't have the zeal to pray for one another we don't have the zeal to care for one another we forget about trinity presbyterian church between sunday and sunday right we, but but we 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 have so little zeal to for the gospel to share the gospel with those who are dying we have so little zeal to to demonstrate the zeal that Augustine has here, but Jesus has the perfect right kind of zeal, and that zeal for his father's house to the point where it enrages him that people would be desecrating this holy place. De- desecrating the place that, that eventually he would destroy because they, they defile it entirely. But here he is saying, no, this should be a house of prayer. This should be a house of dedicated worship to me. And you've just made it a business. A business. You've made it a mall. You've made it a marketplace. You've made it a place for you to fill up your bank accounts. And the glory of God was so far from that place. But what what zeal consumes you? Examine yourself on this. You'll come up with a really, 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 really long list of stupid things. But the glory of the Lord should be the one thing that consumes you. The glory of the Lord should be the only thing that flips that anger switch in you. Glory of God. And so when you hear somebody blaspheme in front of you, glory for God switch comes on and you rebuke that person and say that's my savior be quiet that righteous sort of anger but we don't do that because we don't have that zeal, that zeal. We, have, we have our zeal is for many things of the world but not for God's glory It should be noted that the the people of Jerusalem were so hard-hearted that they returned to this practice of making the temple a place of business. So Jesus goes through, cleanses the temple, and it probably wasn't a half hour later that they were back setting up their, their wares, right? Because we see him do this again later in his life. It just goes back to the same practice. And so while Jesus had his Father's glory in mind, these Jews had nothing but their own wealth in mind. They were numb to spiritual good. They had become materialists who live for the here and now, right? And not for the glory of God. Because, I mean, in Matthew 21, we read of the subsequent cleansing of the temple that took place during Jesus last week. The priests and the rulers of the people were recalcitrant, right? They did not yield to this urgent action by the Son of God. They were hard-hearted, and it's evidently true what Jesus said about them. How often I desired to gather you, right? How often I wanted to father your children together just as a hen, or gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you wouldn't have it. One application of this to worship. The peace of the tabernacle had been disrupted by the noise of commerce. Right? though we don't have sheep and goats distracting us at this point, um, as we gather for worship, we do have the noise of our lives bouncing about in our heads. Right? I would urge you to see Jesus' actions at the temple as the actions of a God who is jealous for his worship. He's jealous for his worship. What once had been a quiet place of prayer had become a scene of noisy animals and noisy marketeers. What God required was a prayerful and sober approach to His presence, and that is no different than today. God requires of us a sober and quiet approach to the worship of Him. Yes, we can fellowship and talk, but at some point before worship, you should disengage from chatting about your week and the books you're reading. Right And quiet yourself to worship God. Quiet yourself. You should take a moment to ask God to bless the preaching of His Word. Um, you, should, you should, in your own hearts, right? You should take a moment to ask God to work His Spirit in the church. And you should ask Him to fill your heart with joy and fear as you enter into His presence. Right? take that moment don't be afraid to be rude to somebody and say you know what i don't want to talk to you anymore i want to pray zeal for god's house can consume you that little bit right i mean you can be nice about it i've got to go pray you don't have to say the first part right but but let's 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 sh- I mean, let's show our zeal for God's house. Let's show our zeal for worship by doing this. Now, back to our passage. The Jews are indignant with Jesus. Zeal for their wealth is still consuming them. And so they confront the wrathful Jesus by questioning his authority. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? What sign do you show us of your authority? I believe they want to see a miracle from him that would attest to his divine authority, like Elijah, perhaps. You know, if he called down fire from heaven, right, they would perhaps maybe be inclined to accept that he was a prophet and could do what he had just done by overturning those tables. As to the matter of authority, their request was to begin this showdown between the, the Jews and Jesus that would last until, in league with Rome, they had him dead on a tree. Right? In that death, they thought that they had vanquished his authority. They, they, they did not expect resurrection power right, to overrule them. The mere fact that Jesus had disrupted this festival of wealth, this, this chaos of commerce, and had not been arrested or accosted in some way could be indicative that Jesus' actions actually were a miracle. That he had just, just done this miracle and he, they, they didn't touch him. How is it that no one retaliated and, and they now just ask him a question? Um, Nothing but the hand of God being on those events. This was the Son of God coming into the temple and doing His Father's work, and the Spirit is blowing about where it pleases within this temple, keeping things just on track. And so the, the very circumstances is the sign they're looking for. Jesus responds to their request with this statement, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now think of the language he's using here. This is the language that's going to be used against him in his trial, isn't it? He said that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. but That's not what he says. He says, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up. It's like he's, he's a lawyer and he's giving an example. Let's say the temple was destroyed. In three days, I'll raise it up. Right, so he, that's why it's false testimony at his, his trial, right? He doesn't say what, he doesn't say what they uh, make him to say. They twist it just perfectly. But he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews take this literally as if Jesus could build a building in three days from the rubble that comes from it being knocked down. They say it took 46 years to build this temple. 46 years to build this temple. And you're going you're gonna to fix it. You're going to raise it back up in three days? Then in verse 21 and 22, we learn what Jesus meant by this statement. We don't learn that he said anything else to them. Uh, he leaves them hanging. He's speaking in parables so that hearing they may not understand. Right? And so... We learn what Jesus meant by his statement. He was speaking of the resurrection of his body from the dead. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which was spoken about that Jesus had spoken. And so Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, how was Jesus' body a temple? Well, think of it this way. God determined that he would be present with his people in the temple. His presence would dwell within the temple. His presence was there in an extraordinary way. So, too, the presence of God is with his people in Jesus in an even more extraordinary way. Right? So, uh, we don't... Now... We don't want to make too close an analogy between the physical temple and the temple of Jesus' body because then we would be in danger of the heresy of Nestorianism, right? Jesus' body was not just an empty receptacle for divinity to come and fill with divine nature. No, he took on human flesh and he was God-man, fully God, fully man. Yet Jesus is still Emmanuel, right? God with us. As God was present in the Holy of Holies, so God is present through his Son. And remember what happened when Jesus died. Right? The temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. The utility and function of the old temple was done away with. The activity of the temple ceased to have any meaning because Jesus had ended sacrifice with his final perfect sacrifice. His action on the cross was the work of the final temple, of which the action of the previous temples had merely pointed. The Jews don't get this. The Jews did not get this. The Jews still do not get this. They loved the temple structure. They loved the temple structure. They loved the physical look, the furniture, the ceremonies, the smells, the smoke, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's what they loved. Here was God in the flesh, and they were clinging to a building and not even using that building in the way that God had told them to use it. But not all of the Jews were left in their rebellious blindness, right? Looking back on the statement after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They remembered this sentence. Spoken by Jesus about raising up the temple in three days. And they believed. They uh, they, They may not have gotten it when Jesus said it originally. I don't think they got it. Right, But as they, um, eventually though, Jesus' words lodged in their minds and they believed, right? As they, as they saw the events of Jesus' crucifixion, as they saw the temple veil torn in two. Ryle draws an application from this delay in their understanding that I thought was helpful to us. He says, it is a comfortable and cheering thought that the same kind of thing that happened to the disciples is often going on at the present day. The sermons that are preached to apparently heedless ears in churches are not all lost and thrown away. The instruction that is given in school and pastoral visits is not all wasted and forgotten. The texts that are taught by parents to children are not all taught in vain. There is often a resurrection of sermons, a resurrection of texts and instruction after an inter- interval of many years. Right? The good seed sometimes springs up after he that sowed it has been long dead and gone. Let preacher, preachers go on preaching and teachers go on teaching and parents go on training up their children in the way they should go. Let them sow the good seed of the Bible, of Bible truth, in faith, And patience, their labor is not in vain in the Lord. Their words are remembered far more than they think and will yet spring up after many days. That should encourage you, you parents and you elders and you pastors and you evangelists and you teachers, you homeschooling parents, that should encourage you. We plant seeds, God's power works or does not work, gives growth or allows the seed to wither. I mean, I remember sentences or even just words that people uh, spoke to me that God lodged in my brain or has brought back at certain points to my remembrance uh, at just the right time, right? There are also weird things I remember that people said, like some, some I mean, some guy told me that I, I um, used paper towels wrong when I dried my hands. And so every time I dry my hands, I think of that guy, and I pray for him. <sighs> that was Phil Henry. Yeah, you know Phil Henry. And he would do that, right? He would, he would tell me, I, you, you, gotta, you, you don't rub, you got to pat. And, but, but so I'm sure you all have examples of this where you're constantly triggered um, I mean that in every respect, by these memories. But we also remember it was somebody who rebuked us, somebody who shared the word of God with us, somebody who said some phrase that instantly brought understanding or conviction or help to us at a certain point. And and so uh, we see that in this passage in um, in these disciples. Perhaps there's been a psalm that you've read it it often works this way too there's a psalm that you've read 155 times and yet it's not until God put his spirit on you and put you in a certain context where you read it and you were like oh that's makes sense that's what I needed to hear right It healed you when you were wounded. It convicted you when you were sinning. We constantly then ingest the word of God or should, and the Spirit uses it in His timing. Right? That's just because God blesses in His timing is not the reason to leave off doing the daily work of ingesting the word. Right? You ingest continually and wait for the Lord and he will act. So let me finish here. Returning to the question that I asked earlier, are you zealous for God? If you want to know what you are zealous about, just contemplate your anger. Right? If if it's, if it's your ego that you are zealous about, your anger will flare up when you are insulted. If it is your wealth that you're zealous about, your anger will flare up when your investments tank. If it's your lust you're zealous about, your anger will flare up when um, your husband or wife doesn't give you what you want. If it's food you are zealous about, your anger will flare up when the doctor tells you that you've got to make a few changes, bud. Bud. Um, if it's your vanity that you are zealous about, your anger will flare up when, when somebody in the car rolls down the window and messes up your hair, right? If, it, if, it's, uh, if it's your car you're zealous about, your anger will flare up when your kids ride their bikes past it and totally scrape up the entire side of the car, Right? On and on I could go with things like this. We're very zealous people just for stupid things, right? But if it is God you are zealous about, your anger will be righteous. You will actually have a justifiable anger, right? You will let so many things slide that make the normal person angry. But when the normal person is usually quiet, you will speak up when God's name is being dragged through the mud, right this is zeal for, this is the zeal that marked our savior he was zealous for his father for his father's house ultimately that's a way of saying he was zealous for his father's glory he did not de- defend himself but he flew into a rage when he saw others making a mockery of his father whom he loved right may we do the work of examining our anger repenting of unrighteous anger praying that god would fill us with so much love, right, so much regard, so much zeal for his name that it would even transform our spirit so that we might be angry at the right things. Angry at the right things. Angry because God's glory is being diminished. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we pray that You would work Your Spirit in us, that we might have zeal for Your name, zeal for Your house, zeal for Your church, zeal for Your, ultimately for Your glory. Lord, we are ashamed when we think about our anger and how our anger is usually a function of our sin and not a function not a righteous anger anger about this or that zealous for this or that zealous for for sinful things zealous for lesser things zealous for egos and self-centeredness lord forgive us cleanse us i pray that we would know your glory that you would fill our minds and our hearts with your glory so that all Everything else will diminish, that we'll be ashamed of, of zeal for anything less than your great gl- gloriousness. Father, I pray that you would uh, you would help us to be prepared for worship. I pray that even, even the day before we would be. Uh, anticipating with joy being in your house and fellowshipping with your people, but ultimately being in your presence by your Spirit, singing your praises and being fed from your hand. I pray that, that we would long to be together in worship. I pray that e- even on Sunday mornings we would, we would pray that we would anticipate, that we would pause, that we would, uh, that we would take even a minute here or there to thank the Lord that we can come together to worship Him. Father, I pray that we would be, when we enter into the sanctuary, that we would quiet our hearts and that we would, again, pray to You and ask for Your blessing upon this uh, this worship that You've called us to. Father, we, we pray for your help. We are, we are so easily distracted. And our flesh wars against your spirit. I pray and ask that the spirit would conquer our flesh. And that we would rejoice in you. That we would be at rest in you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.